Welcome. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm here every week at this time. This is where we talk about what's going on in the markets and the economy from the perspective of looking at what's happened historically when the climate looked like it does now. How will this affect your IRAs, your 401ks, and your planning for retirement? And today we want to talk about debt. Not your debt necessarily, although retiring debt is always a good idea. But we want to talk about debt in the public sector, meaning government debt, both at the federal and state level, and debt in the private sector, because there's two words that describes the situation today debt excesses. You may have noted this past week or seen a news story. The U.S. federal government opened its new fiscal year. The fiscal year begins on October 1. And if one takes a look at the national debt on October 1, 2018, it was about $21.6 trillion. One year later, $22.62 trillion. Roughly speaking, the government has accumulated more than $1 trillion in new debt during the course of the 2019 fiscal year. Now, if you think about that for a moment, 2019 might have been one of the best years ever measured by short-term financial performance. I mean, during 2019, the stock market reached an all-time high, real estate prices were near all-time highs. Corporate profits were up. Personal income was up slightly. Unemployment is hovering near an all-time low. All of these factors resulted in the U.S. government having more tax revenue than they've ever had. Uncle Sam has never had more income in its entire history. There weren't any major foreign wars, there were no banking crises, there were no massive bailouts, and the U.S. government was shut down for much of the month of January due to a budget conflict, so federal spending was at a minimum for that piece of time. Yet, despite all that, the national debt still increased by more than $1 trillion dollars. You have to ask how that's even possible. Now, there's another way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is how much in terms of actual dollars is the U.S. government spending just to pay interest on the debt? Well, if you go back and look at fiscal year 2012, the government spent $359 billion paying interest on its debt. Three years later, that $359 billion increased to 402 billion. Two years later in 2017, it increased to 458 billion. And in fiscal year 2019, the year that just closed yesterday, the government spent more than 540 billion just paying interest on the debt. The pattern is clear. In seven years, the government has increased expenditures to pay interest on the debt by $200 billion, and that's with arguably a very good year in 2019. You can't assume every 
year will be trouble-free. Now, you don't really have to ask yourself when this will end because we don't really know it will end. What you really need to concern yourself with, with is the fact that it will end and you need to know what the consequences will be. But really, the story doesn't even end there because the official U.S. debt, which is, as I said, about $22.63 trillion, and incidentally, when you go to usdebtclock.org and break that $22.63 trillion down on a per-taxpayer basis, it's more than $180,000. But that doesn't even count the unfunded liabilities of federal programs. Now, in the interest of time, let's forget that a lot of federal programs exist for our discussion here. And we'll focus only on the two biggies, Social Security and Medicare. Now, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, who is uh, a past guest here on the program and who actually has a software program that he's developed to help people maximize their Social Security benefits and has had a book on the bestseller list dealing with Social Security maximization, wrote a piece that commented on the report most recently published by the trustees of the Social Security program. The unfunded liabilities of Social Security, according to the Social Security trustees' report, this is Social Security reporting this, underfunded liabilities are now $43 trillion, and that includes a not hardly even reported on $9 trillion deficit just last year. If you break that down on a per taxpayer basis, we're now approaching $350,000 per taxpayer. That's a total between the national debt and the underfunded liabilities of Social Security of more than a half a million dollars per taxpayer. And we haven't yet gotten to Medicare. Former Federal Reserve Bank President in Dallas, Richard Fisher, stated that Medicare has total unfunded liabilities of about $85 trillion, and admittedly, that was from a speech he gave several years ago. That adds another $690,000 per U.S. taxpayer. So when you add the liabilities per taxpayer numbers together for the national debt, the, the unfunded liabilities of Social Security, and the unfunded liabilities of Medicare one gets a total cost per taxpayer of more than $1.2 million. And again, that begs the question, how does it get paid? Well, the harsh reality is that it doesn't, as I'll demonstrate to you in just a minute. There are a couple of better questions to be asking yourself. One, when will it stop? When Will it be impossible to pay the interest on the debt? Is that five years out, 10 years out? The reality is nobody knows, but we do know that trajectory is unsustainable. It will stop. As the late economist Herbert Stein said, he was very profound. He said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. 
That is profound, isn't it? The other question you should be concerned about is, what will the consequences be for you? Now, we have some resources to help people navigate what really is now uncharted waters from a financial planning perspective. We have central bank policies, as we'll talk about with our special guest today in the next segment, Brian London, of negative interest rates and money creation. We've got debt levels that are unprecedented, and there will be consequences when this stops. We will see either a massive inflation followed by deflation, or we'll see deflation. And if you haven't yet taken steps to at least understand these possible outcomes, I would encourage you to check out some of the resources that we have available for you. The first thing you could do is attend one of our educational events where we talk about what's going on in the economy. We talk about IRA and 401k tax savings opportunities under the new law. And we talk about these economic consequences. If you want to learn more about our next event, all you have to do is visit the website socialsecuritydinner.com and information about our next event in your area is available there. You can also register there while capacity remains. And the website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. The other thing you could do is visit the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. That is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And on that site, you'll find additional resources. You can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch. And all the back podcasts of this radio program are also available if you'd like to listen in. Now, to finish talking a bit in this segment about debt, and I'll pick it up again in the fourth segment, there's also more private sector debt today than there was prior to the financial crisis. See, at the height of the Great Recession, total household debt was $12.7 trillion, and presently it stands at $13.54 trillion, that up almost a trillion dollars as well, and still rising. Credit card debt is now over $1 trillion. Automobile debt is now over $1 trillion. Mortgage debt is over $9 trillion. Student loan debt is $1.5 trillion, and 11.5% of student loans are now 90 days past due. So what does all this mean? Well, stating the obvious, if there's too much debt to be paid, it simply won't be paid. As far as public debt and underfunded liabilities are concerned, liability of $1.2 million per taxpayer is totally unmanageable as are some of the political solutions being proposed. I'll talk more about it in segment four of today's program, but stay tuned. I will be back after these words, and I'll chat with Mr. Brian London. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am pleased to have back on the program uh, Mr. Brian London. Brian was on the program earlier this year. Uh, Brian is the editor of Gold Newsletter, 
Uh, you can check out Gold Newsletter at goldnewsletter.com. And uh, for a limited time, there's also a special offer at goldnewsletter.com forward slash webinar. Brian is also the CEO of the New Orleans Investment Conference. And Brian, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Dennis. So, Brian, last time you were on the program, um, you had mentioned that you were bullish on gold and looked for potentially a breakout move this year. That's happened, so congratulations. Give me your analysis of the gold market as it stands now. Well, right now, the gold market's kind of fighting two narratives. You know, the bullish narrative, the one that the long-term investors are buying into, and the reason why they're buying gold is because they see that uh, the, the current economy and really the economies around the world in every developed market have been uh, supported by a policy of ever easier money from the central banks. Um, now, that's been over a decade in this iteration, but uh, really since the 1970s, every economic slowdown has been met by uh, lower interest rates and a deluge of liquidity of new money by the central banks. Um, to try and mitigate the effects of every economic downturn. And, and what that has done has uh, not allowed these um, excesses to be wiped out uh, in, in every cycle, and it has supported new bubbles and encouraged more debt creation. And it's also ratcheted interest rates ever lower. So we're, we're in another cycle. We're beginning another cycle of that where you know, central banks around the world are already into well into the negative zone on interest rates. The U.S. Federal Reserve mm -hmm. has yet to get there, but very likely will. Um, and so longer-term investors are bullish on gold for precisely these reasons, because gold will be the big beneficiary of these policies. Shorter term, we have traders that are looking at gold's failure to maintain its upward momentum in recent weeks. And the fact that the metals kind of traced out a, uh, a classic head and shoulders pattern on, uh, on its price chart that is indicating a fall to the 1400 to 1425 area. So that's why some of these uh, trend following investors who may have been late coming to the, the big gold rally are, are selling and betting against gold right now. So these two forces are kind of fighting against each other. Where, where they go, I don't know, over the next few weeks, but and I don't think anybody can predict, but I think the longer term remains solidly bullish for the reasons I, I just mentioned. And Brian, when you look at central bank uh, policy, um, it seems like you know, when you, go, you look back at the boom and bust cycles that, that, that are evident and, and certainly I believe are caused by central bank policies, it seems like every time the policy response gets more extreme and yet the positive outcome seems to be watered down. In other words, it seems like they're not getting as much bang for the buck. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You really you hit the nail on the head. The, the markets uh, and even economies have become addicted to the the elixir of, um, of monetary easing and more liquidity. Um, you know, the last cycle we saw the Federal Reserve resort to extreme measures, unprecedented measures of quantitative easing. And what we know, what we can see, is that the, uh, the addict will need ever-increasing dosages to get the same effect. So the next time they go to quantitative easing, it's going to dwarf anything they, they did before. 
So you're, you're right. Every cycle, and you can see it clearly when you <clears> step back and look at at, at things since uh, the 1970s, central banks have resorted to ever-increasing dosages of monetary easing with every cycle. Um, so where does it go? At, at some point, I think that results in, uh, in currencies losing credibility, but I don't know if that will happen in this cycle or the one afterwards or the one after that, but that's the track we're on. So – Brian, when you when you take a look at central bank policy, I mean, quantitative easing was certainly stepping over the line, but now we've got $17 trillion, I think, or in that neighborhood anyway, you can correct me if you've got a, a, a different number, of sovereign debt worldwide yielding negative interest rates. Did you ever think you'd see that? No, no, it just, the whole world turned upside down. And, you know, interestingly, you're accurate on that number, by the way, and it's really soared over the last few months. And tracking that against the price of gold, the correlation is about the closest that I've seen uh, in all my years of watching gold. So there's no doubt why big-time money, smart investors have been moving into gold, and that's because of the debasement of, of currencies, and we're seeing it. Um, you know, right in front of us, and and it has to continue because of the debt loads that we see around the world. So, Brian, when you look at examples of of money printing, um, and and it's typically done because debt levels, as you said, are unpayable. I mean, you look at, for example, Zimbabwe, uh, hyperinflation followed by deflation, now back into hyperinflation. Is is this a cycle that that is, is it like a treadmill that we're going to be on for? you know, the, the next couple decades, or, or how do you see the end game uh, playing out here? Well, the end game is that the currencies will lose, um, you know, as I said, all their credibility, but it will be fiat currencies in general, not just the U.S. dollar or the euro or the yen. The You know, we've, we've seen this before throughout human history. Civilizations have always overspent their means, either through military campaigns, entitlements, you know, or whatever, they've always created debts and had to debase the currencies. We saw that in, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece. Um, and it's in every instance, the prescription has been the same. You have to debase the currencies when debts get out of control. It's the only way out of the mess. And it's, and it's only a temporary measure. But uh, what, what has happened throughout human history is that countries have been able to do this to some extent because they're debasing their currencies against other currencies and other nations. Uh, today, every developed economy is in the same boat with just monstrously large, unmanageable debt loads. And so they all have to devalue their currencies. They're all racing to the bottom of the hill. You know, sometimes one is leading the race and sometimes one will fall back, but they're all headed in the same direction. And in that kind of an environment, Really, the only thing left that they can debase themselves against are real assets, primarily gold, as as obviously the historic monetary asset. So do you see at some point in the future, Brian, that, that gold will actually become money again, as it has been for much of history? I, I don't know that a, a classical gold standard will, uh, will eventually uh, emerge. Uh, but I think some kind of a quasi-gold standard where perhaps gold is legalized as a currency and perhaps there is some band where uh, currencies are attached to gold. 
Um, I, I think there are solutions right now where the the U.S., for example, could legalize gold as a currency, but but maintain the dollar as a circulating currency as well. Um, in that way, they could do you know pull all of the levers they're already using to to loosen money and manage the economy. But if there is and when there is eventual inflation, uh, the, the citizens can be protected from it by by owning gold. So Brian, as a uh, as a gold analyst, uh, do you have an opinion on cryptocurrencies? That certainly that topic has made the news a lot recently. I don't think anyone knows what the eventual role of cryptocurrencies will be. Um, I think that uh, there is a role, and I think it's a significant one. I think ultimately that cryptocurrencies that are connected to a real physical asset, uh, most likely gold, of course, will be uh, the eventual winner in any kind of a monetary role for crypto. So tell the listeners, uh, just to shift gears here, we've got just a few minutes here before the end of the segment. Uh, what is the New Orleans Investment Conference? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my mentor in the industry was uh, Jim, a man named Jim Blanchard, who started Gold Newsletter in 1971 to kind of advocate for the return of gold legalization, legal gold ownership to American citizens. He was successful in that, and he had his first conference in 1974 to teach American investors how to invest in gold. Ever since then, the New Orleans Investment Conference, as it became to be known, has been the, the world's uh, most respected and, uh, and, in many cases, largest event dedicated to teaching investors, not just in gold, every investment sector out there, but also focusing on geopolitics and economics and everything that affects the markets, um, but also having a, a very special focus on gold, precious metals investing, and the associated mining stocks that kind of leverage the moves in the metals. And in the time we have left, talk, Brian, about uh, uh, Gold Newsletter. Again, if you're just joining us, the website is goldnewsletter.com forward slash webinar if you'd like to take a look at uh, uh, that offer. But what, what are you telling your readers now in, in Gold Newsletter? Well, I'm telling them to focus on the big picture. Uh, again, we're in a stage, a cycle, where central banks will be in a uh, forced uh, to ease money again, to ease monetary policy. And the, the even broader picture is that uh, the, the markets demand not just easy money, but ever easier money. And, and that explosion in, in negative yielding sovereign debt that you mentioned is, is the, the foremost sign of that policy or that trend in action. So we're going to have uh, volatility along the way. There's going to be a lot of uh, jags along that line as it goes ever higher in the gold price. But they need to, to keep their, their, their focus on the bigger picture, uh, take these periodic downturns and corrections as opportunities to reposition themselves, um, and really enjoy the process. Make sure they're positioned in this sector because it's heading higher not only higher, but I believe to new record levels over the next few years. Well, we will continue our conversation with Brian London in the next segment when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with Mr. Brian London. Brian is the CEO of the New Orleans Investment Conference. He's also the editor of Gold Newsletter. If you'd like to learn more about his work, you can go to goldnewsletter.com forward slash webinar for a special offer. And uh, Brian, your uh, New Orleans Investment Conference is uh, sneaking up here within the next month. Um, talk a little bit about what are the big themes this year? What are investors interested in? Well, you know, we're known for getting really big-name speakers. You know, we've uh, had Alan Greenspan, Margaret Thatcher, Ayn Rand. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, this year, because I had a very good feeling that we would be in a, a new bull market in precious metals, I decided to try and fill out our bench strength, as it were, with advisors and experts in that area. Uh, so the result is, a, a gathering of many of the world's top experts and authorities in precious metals and mining stocks. And, you know, typically what happens at the New Orleans conference is that these experts like to save their top recommendations for the year uh, for our event because of its status is, is, is really the granddaddy of all investment events. So they want to get on our big stage. They want to have a pick that really works for the attendees. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. We have a lot of different venues for, for these experts to provide those picks. And we're also focusing uh, on some other areas. We have panels uh, and kind of tracks and experts on other segments of technology, uh, cannabis, um, uh, real estate investing, a lot of different areas where, uh, uh, that we're exposing our attendees to some of the best opportunities in. Well, talk a little bit about uh, you know the difference between investing in gold and gold mining shares because take someone who's listening to this that has an IRA they're managing themselves or they've got a 401k they're maybe thinking about rolling over into an IRA and they've just kind of uh, been investing in the options that their employer gives them. Um, talk a bit about the different ways to be able to take advantage of a bull market in gold, the difference between owning physical shares versus mining shares, and, and what kind of advice would you give somebody like that? Uh, yeah, Dennis, it's, it gets fairly complicated. And, you know, the easy advice is that, uh, you know, history shows that a 5 to 10% weighting in precious metals will uh, give you the, the highest risk-adjusted return in a diversified portfolio, and you really need to have at least that exposure. Given the fact that the, the two major investment sectors of bonds and, and stocks are near all-time highs, uh, it's probably prudent to, to up the, the allocation in precious metals. Now, that's the easy advice, but once you get into it, you realize there's a wide spectrum of investments within this precious metals sector, everything from physical holdings that you can actually hold you know, in your home uh, in a safe or um, at the un other end of the spectrum, you can get into uh, mining stocks that leverage the moves in gold and silver and, and uh, platinum group metals, uh, or even further down the spectrum or uh, to higher, riskier, and higher potential investments like junior mining stocks and exploration stocks and even futures and options. So it can be a dizzying array of of options for somebody who just gets involved in the sector. And I recommend that everyone take some time 
to educate themselves on the sector. You know, uh, look at some newsletters, reports. We actually have a report called the uh, uh, Investor's Guide to Gold and Silver that's free on our website on goldnewsletter.com. Uh, that's that's a comprehensive 30-page report, covers every sector, completely objective, and not only tells uh, investors all about each area of investing, also tells them the, the best newsletters to subscribe to, the best conferences to go to, how to deepen their knowledge and, and research the area in more detail. Uh, so that's freely avail available to the public, but it's part of what I think should be a process of, of learning about the sector before they dive too deeply into it. You know, Brent, I'd like your uh, I'd like your take on uh, the gold silver ratio. Um, I've had guests on the program recently that have advocated more for silver than gold, pointing to that the fact that uh, you know from uh, from a relative perspective, gold has appreciated more than than silver, and uh, they cite the fact that the gold silver ratio is currently about eighty, and 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 fifty is a little bit more normal. Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that that gold-silver ratio, you know, it recently reached uh, extreme levels. And, and I think it's more of a, a good indicator of relative valuations than it is for timing because it can stay at extreme levels for a good period of time. So you can't really use it as, as say, a, a, a trading tool that it's you need to jump in now or switch from one to the other right now. But the fact remains that, the, you know, one of the few – real long-standing truisms in investing and especially in precious metals is that uh, when gold is in some kind of a trend a long-term trend silver will move along that trend to an even greater degree than gold it's kind of a non-expiring option on the gold price so on the way up if gold's in a a, a powerful sustained bull market then silver will outperform gold to the upside now, when the gold price is declining, silver will also decline more quickly. So it presents more risk to go with that, that higher upside potential. Um, basically, I sum it up this way. If you like gold, you have to love silver. And it's a great way to get a, a, a bit greater performance uh, in your precious metals investments if you believe and if gold is actually in a sustained uptrend. And Brian, also, um, I've had guests on the program that have pointed to the fact that uh, currently when you look at silver production, it's not keeping up with uh, industrial use demand for silver. Um, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I do, and it's a bit of a controversial one. I don't think that investors should even uh, consider silver as an investment based on its uh, industrial demand. You know, I've never seen that industrial demand cushion the price in a fall. It will always fall more quickly than gold in a downtrend. And I haven't seen that industrial demand add to silver's upside performance in an uptrend. It will always outperform gold in, uh, you know, along a sustained uptrend. So I, I think that if silver was valued purely on its industrial demand, the price would be under $5 an ounce. Um, it's really the monetary demand that, that keeps silver prices where they are and keeps them uh, accelerating to the upside in, in an environment where investors are looking for gold and silver. 
and it's a hedge against uh, currency depreciation. What is your opinion? You you mentioned them briefly, uh, but I think a lot of our listeners probably are a lot are a lot more familiar with gold and with silver than with platinum and palladium. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- what's your take on th- those uh, metals as alternative investments in the sector? Yeah, that's kind of the opposite of my opinion on silver. I think the industrial demand for for uh, platinum and palladium is actually a big component of 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 their current uh, price trends right now, at least. I think the monetary uh, part of it will come into play further down the road. But you know, we what's happened with palladium is it's had a tremendous bull run over the last couple of years. One that was not predicted really by any expert out there that I that I know of, certainly not me. Um, and it kind of came out of the blue uh, because there was a, a sustained demand for palladium in, in catalytic converters, in internal combustion engines, in the big investment theme out there that everybody's latched onto are electric vehicles and how uh, they're going to dominate the future. Uh, and I think that's true, but the future isn't here yet, and it's not going to be for another 10, 20 years. And in the meantime, we have a severe palladium shortage for catalytic converters and really increasing demand, primarily from China, uh, for palladium in uh, internal combustion engines for that cat- those catalytic converters. So over the next three to five years, um, I think the demand constraints on palladium in particular, and also platinum to some degree, will lead to higher and higher prices in those two metals. And again, that's it's the industrial component that I think is the primary driver of those two markets. And Brian, given the conversation we've had today with uh, central bank policies, and then we're talking about tangible investing, if there was a theme to this conversation, uh, would you agree that it's really that investors need to think about having some of their assets in something tangible? Absolutely, and and when investors uh, are new to the sector and just getting involved and, and want to 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 participate in the market, I tell them that they need the first thing they need to do is have physical metals as uh, a foundation to their precious metals portfolio, and really as an insurance policy against uh, guarding the rest of their investment portfolio. Um, they need to have physical metals, and even in that sub sub sector of this micro sector. There are a number of different options, and people get confused. Um, I do recommend that they have some physical gold and silver uh, closely accessible. That's not in uh, a bank uh, safe deposit box because bank holidays are one of the things you're insuring against, Uh, but in their physical possession or accessible uh, somehow. After they have that, then they can look at physical metals uh, elsewhere and other uh, depositories, independent depositories, even other countries. But uh, they need to have that physical metal component before they even look at some of the other areas to invest in, like like the mining equities. And Brian, at the time we have left, you just mentioned bank holidays are one of the events that you're insuring against by holding physical metals. Uh, when you look at private sector debt levels today, uh, they're significantly higher uh, than they were at the time of the financial crisis. And Typically, when debt levels in the private sector uh, get to the point that they're unsustainable, that affects banks. So what's your take on the health of the banking sector, given the level of private sector debt that does exist today? 
Well, it's healthier than it was before the 2008 crisis because they have tremendous reserves, uh, really excess reserves, and, and literally labeled as excess reserves on deposit with the Federal Reserve. So the banking system is in much better shape. Uh, there is a bigger issue out there, though, uh, post-2008, that uh, the too-big-to-fail institutions are essentially backed now by the federal government, thanks to you know the Dodd-Frank legislation and, and other uh, moves post-2008. And I was talking with Alan Greenspan at our conference a, a few years back, and he pointed to the the kind of elephant in the room that nobody really looks at, that these too-big-to-fail institutions have tremendous derivative positions that, that in total dwarf the, uh, even the, the debts held both corporately, privately, and by the government in the U.S. And these institutions um, don't even have a handle on what their complete derivative exposure may be. But Greenspan's point to me was that the federal government, the U.S., you and I, are actually backstopping those derivative positions. And they are, in fact, incalculably large. We really don't know how large they are, but we know they're, they're bigger than anything else out there. Yeah, and that was certainly a factor back in 2008 as well. But uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Brian London. Brian is the editor of Gold Newsletter. You can learn more at goldnewsletter.com. And he is also the CEO of the New Orleans Investment Conference coming up here next month. Brian, uh, wonderful to chat with you again. Love to have you back on again early next year. Would love to do it, Dennis. Always a pleasure. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, thanks again to Mr. Brian London for joining us on today's program. In case you're just joining us and you did not listen to the first segment of today's program, we are talking about debt. And the two words that really describe what I'm talking about on today's program are debt excesses. I'm talking about this today because this past week, a new fiscal year began for the United States government. And we begin this fiscal year with $1 trillion plus in additional debt versus where we were per one year ago. That amounts to debt per taxpayer of more than $180,000. The most recent Social Security Program trustee report said the underfunded liabilities of the program are now $43 trillion including a $9 trillion deficit just last year. That's per Lawrence Kotlikoff in an article on The Hill. Unfunded liabilities of Medicare, another $85 trillion. Breaking that down on a per-taxpayer basis, that is liability of $1.2 million per taxpayer. And the reality is that is totally unmanageable. Now, raising taxes, as some in the current crop of political aspirants would advocate, can't solve the basic debt problem. The numbers are just too big. In fact, you could confiscate 100% of all household assets in the United States, and you're not going to meet 
that obligation. That's according to usdebtclock.org. Can you cut spending? Sure. If you want to cut spending across the board by more than 50%, likely, that would cause certainly a deflationary outcome that would probably be a deflationary event that would rival none. It would be severe. Seems that for the time being, world policymakers are intent on money creation. Outgoing European Central Bank Chair Mario Draghi just cut the deposit rate from negative 0.4% to negative 0.5%. Now, the deposit rate is the interest rate that commercial banks earn on deposits with the central bank. A negative interest rate means that commercial banks pay to park money with the central bank. Now, on top of cutting the deposit rate to negative a half a percent, Mr. Draghi announced the central bank would once again be cranking up the money creation machine, committing to buy 20 billion euros per month in bonds. They're buying these bonds from banks, and the goal is to inject more cash into Europe's faltering economy. Now, history teaches us that money creation always ends badly. The best case scenario is considerable inflation. Worst case, as we discussed with Brian London in the last segment, is destruction of a currency. Now, the current political environment is reminiscent of the tale penned by Hans Christian Andersen. You probably read it as a child. The tale I'm talking about is titled The Emperor's New Clothes. And in it, the emperor hires two tailors to make him some new clothes. And the tailors make no clothes at all. Instead, they tell the emperor that anyone who is unfit for their position is stupid or incompetent, won't be able to see the clothes, but anyone who is competent and smart will be able to see them. So the emperor and all his advisors pretend to see the clothes so they're not perceived as unfit for their positions or incompetent. Finally, a small child yells out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. In the, per, in the current political environment, there's not one mainstream candidate talking about the fact that debt levels are unsustainable and will lead to inevitable consequences that will adversely affect nearly every American. The current budget deficit of a trillion dollars is simply adding to the ultimate per taxpayer liability that's already more than $1.2 million dollars. Paying off the national debt and fully funding Social Security and Medicare will require more than the entire combined net worth of all U.S. households. So here's my advice. When you hear about Medicare for all, when you hear about billionaire taxes, when you hear about increasing defense spending, or you hear about really new government programs of any kind, any new deal that you want to point to, you just need to understand that the emperor really does not have any new clothes. This debt monster will have to be dealt with at some point. Talk of all these new programs, talk of negative interest rates, and going even further negative to find out how negative they can go, and more money printing just kicks the can down the road. It just feeds the debt monster and makes the debt monster bigger, and it makes the ultimate problem worse. All you can do is assemble the best plan possible to prepare for the inevitable whenever the inevitable occurs. Now, I want to mention that we do have some resources available for you. We talk about these issues along with maximizing Social Security and reducing tax on IRAs and 401ks under the new tax law. 
at our event that we hold regularly. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com and discover where and when our next event will be. The website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. And we also have a website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can visit that website uh, and get podcasts, uh, download it, download podcasts if you'd like of our past programs. If you'd like to listen to the interview that I did with Brian London again, uh, those are available every Monday at 5. Uh, we also have resources there. If you're not subscribing to our Portfolio Watch newsletter, I would encourage you to visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up. It's free. And that newsletter is delivered every Monday at 5 o'clock when the podcast is posted. That's our program for today. Hope you got something you can use. And I'll be back again next week, same time.